0: You're listening to Sermon Audio from King's Cross Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information about King's Cross Church, you can visit us online at kingscrossraleigh.com.
1: Our scripture today comes from Acts chapter 6, starting at verse 11, and then going on through portions of chapter 7. Then they persuaded some men to say, We heard him speaking blasphemous words against Moses and God. They stirred up the people, the elders, and the scribes, so they came dragging him off and took him to the Sanhedrin. They also presented false witnesses who said, This man does not stop speaking blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. For we heard him say that Jesus is Nazarene will destroy this place and change the customs that Moses handed down to us. And all who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at him and saw that his face was like the face of an angel." Is this true? The high priest asked. And then Stephen replied, Our ancestors had the tabernacle of the testimony in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses commanded him to make it according to the pattern he had seen. Our ancestors in turn received it, and Joshua brought it when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before their fathers until the day of David. He found favor in God's sight and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built him a house. However, the Most High does not dwell in sanctuaries made with hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What sort of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is my resting place? Did not my hand make all these things? You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears. You are always resisting the Holy Spirit as our ancestors did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They even killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You received the law under the direction of angels, yet have not kept it. When they heard these things, they were enraged in their hearts and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, filled with the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven. He saw God's glory, with Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Then they screamed at the top of their voices, covered their ears, and together rushed against him. And they threw him out of the city and began to stone him. And the witnesses laid their robes at the feet of the young man named Saul. They were stoning Stephen as he called out, Lord, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out in a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And saying this, he fell asleep. This is God's word.
0: Yeah, you may be seated. Good morning, I am Chad, one of the pastors here. And if you can't tell, I might sound a little bit hoarse in the throat. Um, Unfortunately, for the last... Three weeks, I think, my home has gone through bouts of sickness. I have four children, two of them are home right now um, and uh, and I, my my turn came at the back half of this week. so uh, I was able to i 'm on the, the recovery end feeling feeling better, but uh, nonetheless a little bit hoarse be due to it. so my voice hopefully will hold up as we 've been praying for this morning. Um, we're in Acts 6, starting in verse 7, and we're talking about the story of Stephen. Um, we're, we began last week talking about, um, about this same story, the same message from Acts 6, but looking at it from a different angle. Um, we, we are walking through books of the Bible, and we're in Acts right now, going into the new year. And a couple of things I wanted to share with you as we go into the Advent season is that this coming week we're actually going to be talking about um, Philip and the story from Acts eight, and then we're going to take a sidestep into Advent and begin on uh, that following weekend to to walk through some um, some different focuses on Jesus uh, in that Advent season. And just as a point of uh, announcement, we will be on the 18th of December uh, worshiping with. The Ethiopian church, if you were with us last year, we had a candlelit service and worship service, and we're going to do that again this year. Uh, Ethiopian church is right down the road from us, ones that we have a relationship with. They they worship and sing in what is called Amari, and we come in with the English. And last year we had a Bolivian church come in with the Spanish and Portuguese. And uh, hopefully we'll also have another church join us who wasn't able to come last year just because of sickness in their congregation. So on the 18th, you're invited to join us. We'll be at a different location. Since we do have a rented facility, we have to sometimes make adjustments. And the same thing will be true for December 25th, Christmas. This facility is closed. Uh, It's also closed on New Year's. So what we are doing is on the 24th in the evening, we're going to be actually having a, a Christmas Eve service that we invite everyone to to join us for uh, singing and time and a little time in the word as well, uh, as we prepare for waking up the next morning on Christmas Day, and we're going to do that at the Ethiopian church as well, but in their youth room. All these details and information will be coming shortly. I just want to put that on your radar on your calendar, because if you show up here on Christmas Day, we won't be here. But Merry Christmas. So, um, New Year's, we're going to have some more details there. We're going to we're gonna, we're gonna give you some details of that, but I wanted you to put that on the calendar now. Um, so, let's pray as we get into the text uh, that the Spirit would be with us this morning as we, as we look at Stephen. Last week, we saw Stephen and his character. This week, we see uh, the opposition that he faced. We want to specifically look at the opposition to Stephen. Uh, and I believe there's a lot for us to, to learn here in it. Um, I wanted to, to mention as a note from last week as well that when I talked about Stephen, we talked about how he was full of the Holy Spirit, that he was indwelt by God and full of him in obedience, full of grace. The way that they described Stephen uh, was very righteous and upstanding because he followed closely after God. And I had several questions that came after the fact about uh, talking about um, stirring one's affections for God. How are there resources, or there ways in which I would encourage you to do so? Um, and a couple of things I came back with uh, was this. First and foremost, obedience to what you uh, already know is a, is a good first step. Um, another thing is that we believe as Christians that the Spirit of God dwells in each one of us. Uh, we believe that God's Spirit is in you. And though, as Jesus told his disciples... Your spirit is willing, the flesh is weak. And so I know there can be all kinds of distractions in the world that we live in. And my encouragement to you is to do all that we can in obedience, in cultivating the kindling, if you will, uh, in our own hearts, that the Holy Spirit who dwells in you might ignite that fire and passion. It's not an uncommon thing, and it doesn't mean you're broken as a human being, that you struggle at times with passion for Christ. Uh, for, for, for time in the Word. Maybe you wake up and you just don't feel like opening up that Bible that day. Or maybe you do it in the evening and it's been a long day and you don't feel like jumping into it. My encouragement is to you, even in those moments, to take a time but just to read and reflect um, because God might meet you there. And I know for a fact He does meet us there because His Spirit indwells His people. And one of the ways that I encourage you maybe to think through that uh, is that you could even take the time to go through some psalms to open them up, read a psalm, they're inspired text, they are emotional songs and hymns. Uh, the psalmists are all over the map at times. It's one of the most beautiful images in the Bible of the imperfection of humanity, yet praising the perfect God. And so, to take the time to read through the Psalms and to pray those Psalms back as God does work in you. To to take what is really the appeal that is inspired in our Scripture and to pray those things to God when we fall short of having the words ourself to speak. I also would encourage different ways, some resources that might be around. I mentioned this book last week. Uh, it's by a former pastor, theologian, John Piper. Uh, w- he wrote a book called Desiring God, and a follow-up to that was because everybody kept coming up and said, well, what about when I don't desire God? So he wrote a book, said, when I don't desire God. How to fight for joy. Uh, a little tidbit, if you didn't know, every John Piper book is completely free online in PDF form. So if you go to desiringgod.com you, you can uh, .org you can find this I'd be happy to send a link to you. Another thing that I would encourage you in is a, a resource I've loved called uh, Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life uh, by Donald Whitney. It's an encouraging non-legalistic look at the joy and goodness of, of spiritual disciplines in our life and how they are used by God to cultivate the gospel in our soul. And, and, and Donald Whitley does such a fantastic job walking through that. So those are a couple of resources I wanted to mention before we get started and move forward this morning because from last week's sermon. But uh, as we prepare for the rest of this text and look at the opposition of Stephen, if you would join me, we're going to pray. Father, I'm thankful today for the opportunity we get to open up your word, that we get the chance to see you in the text. God, I pray that Jesus would be evident this morning. Lord, that in my preparation and in, Lord, the direction you have given me in my mind, that your spirit would be first and foremost. That the evidence of God's spirit working through the word this morning would teach us and reveal to us what is the truth of your word so that we would all look more like Jesus. God, I ask all this in his name. Amen. I'm going to set these books right here. Excuse me. Out of my way. So we live in a world that, I don't know if it's actually historically a fact, but it feels that way. That can tend to seem a little over-politicized. Lance made a a reference this morning to the political season. I know I get inundated with a lot of of flyers and every kind of information that goes into my mailbox every day uh, during this time of year. One of the things about that, though, is that given that we live in that culture and we live in that space, that it can be tempting, and we probably see many Christians, or at least professing Christians, people claiming the name of Christ, jumping into the fray of politics in a really gross and unloving and unkind and ungracious way. If you're visiting with us this morning, I'm really glad that you're here, um, because this is a really what I believe and what I see here and what I believe God is demonstrating, a look into what is God's way. Not the way of the world, not the way in which the powers of this world try to oppress and manipulate and lie and work through. That's the way that Stephen is opposed in this text. But rather to look at Stephen and say, where am I falling and where am I tempted in this world that I live in? When I face opposition... Do I respond like Stephen? Do I trust in God? Do I see the powers of this world? Am I tempted to think that I can grab a hold of of the powers that are available through politics or whatever resources to force my way on other people without a care for who they are? Is that the way that God has directed and given us? Is that the way that he leads us? When I was actually in my adolescence, uh sometime i don't know how old i was but uh became very popular to wear wristbands that said wwjd on them you guys anybody still have one of those anybody no you're working one uh so if you're familiar i see lots of smiles it means what would jesus do okay Now, it catches a lot of flack. It's kind of a social, like a weird phenomenon during a period when I was going in youth and all this fun stuff. But the question it was intending to probe was, if we live our life in such a way and we walk through this world interacting with people in this world, to ask the question in each one of those moments, what is it that Jesus would do in this moment? I think it's innocent enough and and good positive thought in some respect because, because when we look at the Old Testament or New Testament and we look at the disciples, really what they were doing was emulating and living like Jesus. In fact, in the New Testament over and over again, what was really well known was that the followers of Jesus were known as followers of the way, kind of a shorthand. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. And so his disciples are known as ones who followed after the way. They lived like Jesus. They loved like Jesus. They showed humility and kindness and grace like Jesus. They confounded the world because the way they chose to live day after day was so remarkably different from the way the world lived. Jesus even told his disciples when they, were, when they were following after him and wanted to be first and foremost, they loved to have these little fights of who's the greatest, who's the best, which was much more of a worldly argument. And Jesus said, the one who's going to be the first among you will be the last. And you're not going to lead others like the world does where they lord their authority over other people, but rather you'll be a servant of all. See how dramatic he flips the script. And even today, we see many leaders take that same approach They talk about uh, leaders eating last. They uh, They talk about servant leadership, almost as if it's their idea. But we see in Scripture here, there's a different way in which the followers of Jesus live. And this story is truly set up as a contrast between the truth of who Jesus is and the way of God and the lies of the world. Between God's way and the way of the world. The way of the world, which is the way of power, the way of force, and the way of pride. And we've been talking about God's kingdom advancing throughout Acts, and God advancing his kingdom. And one thing I want you to hear this morning is that the way in which God advances his kingdom is true truth proclaimed in love. Over and against those lies, manipulation, and the power of all the worldly opposition. And if this text is any indicator, as we see through Acts, God wins. No matter what the world throws back at them, God wins. This is God's way, the way of Jesus. So I want to look at a couple of sets of uh, opposition. We're going to take a little bit, I'm going to walk a little bit different maybe than you're accustomed to because I want to do something of, Stephen delivers one of the longest sermons in Acts. And Luke records it for us for a reason. So I want to take a moment to walk through what Stephen is saying and what he is combating when he gives his sermon. Why does he say the things he saying? And then we're going to close by saying what is the result of God's way being lived out in front of opposition. So let's look first at God's way versus lies and manipulation. Chapter 6, verses 7 through 14. I just moved my finger like I had an iPad in front of me with my Bible. I'm sorry. So the word of God spread, the disciples in Jerusalem increased greatly in number, and a large group of priests became obedient to the faith. Now Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from some members of the freedmen synagogue, composed of both Cyrenians and Alexandrians, and some from uh, Cilicia in Asia. And they began to argue with Stephen, but they were unable to stand up against his wisdom and the spirit by which he was speaking. So at the very beginning of the story, we saw this last week, we see that, Jesus, that uh, Stephen is actually sharing the gospel. He is speaking to people he's familiar with in a context in which he is, um, he is comfortable and used to being in a space he's normally in before he met Jesus. He, Stephen is a, what is called a Hellenistic Jew. He's of Greek background. His name is Greek. In the beginning of chapter 6, he was officially assigned to be a leader in the feeding of the widows and the orphans in the church because they had that need. He was a man of, of character, of wisdom in the Holy Spirit. It says he was a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. He was full of grace and power. He was on, and, and then we see when he's speaking these truths, he's in a space that's called the Freedman's Synagogue. Now, you might not be familiar with what the Freedman's Synagogue is. But the Freedmen synagogue is actually made up of either former slaves, that's what freedman was in Roman culture, or uh, those who were descendants of former slaves. So there was a very marriage a hierarchical society, and you came out of that background, you didn't mingle with the upper class. So they had a separate synagogue. In addition to that, these were also former slaves who were not Hebraic Jews. They were not originally born and raised in Jerusalem. They met in Jerusalem, they worshipped in a synagogue in Jerusalem, but they came from other places. That's why we're told here that they were composed of Cyrenians and Alexandrians and Cilicia and Asia, all these places that they came from. And the reason that Jewish people may have been born and raised in other countries or other cities or other nations is because of something called the diaspora or the dispersion of Jewish people. Okay, so throughout the Old Testament, we see more than one time where The Israeli, the Jewish people were conquered, and what nation states would do is they would take a portion of the people, and they would move them to another portion of their empire as a way of trying to do crowd control. You know, if you have everybody who's been conquered in this room, and we're all still together, we might, you know, get together, come up with a plan, make a rebellion. Instead, they take half your city, and they move it over here. And they take part of this city and they move it over here. And they force them to move to different areas of the nations and cities around their empire because then you begin to get invested in a different space. You get to intermingle and you weren't able to collaborate to try to rebel. So it was a strategy that was implemented. As a result, we see people who were born and raised, they were were, were Jewish, but they weren't born and raised in Jerusalem. And so in this case, that's where Stephen is comfortable. He's coming from that same background. And he's speaking to people in the freedmen's synagogue now here's why it's important to think about all that background these are people who born and raised in other nations they had every opportunity to not really care about their roots as jewish people because they were in other greco-roman societies they were not going to be judged they were going to be punished if they just went ahead and went with culture in that space But these were people who intentionally left when they had the opportunity, went back to Jerusalem, and were actively worshiping in a synagogue. So how much do you think they cared about the law and about Jewish culture as far as following after God? They cared very much. So much so that when when Stephen shows up and he starts talking about this Jesus and other things, they started trying to argue with him. And it says... They were unable to stand up against his wisdom and the spirit by whom he was speaking. So they were unable to argue against what Jesus, what Stephen, I'm going to go back and forth say the wrong here, but Stephen, what he was presenting as an argument. He was trying to tell them, listen, the Jewish culture, the temple, the synagogues, all these things were all leading up to Jesus. He was here. He's the Messiah. He's the one we've been waiting for. But they didn't want to hear it. In fact, they didn't want to hear it so bad that we can actually deduce that they have set up the synagogue and the law and Moses as something of an idol for themselves. Because the very next phrase in verse 11 reveals their heart. They don't care about the truth. They only care about getting rid of him as the problem. Verse 11, then they secretly persuaded some men to say, They went and found people to lie about what Stephen said. We heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. They stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes. So they came, seized him, and took him to the Sanhedrin. Okay, the Sanhedrin were the Jewish leaders who would have made final court decisions over this guy who's being accused of blasphemy. So they secretly persuaded men to give false witness. They stirred up the people to get him arrested and sent to the Sanhedrin. In verse... 13, they also presented false witnesses of their own. They also got other people who were willing to lie for them. And say this, this man never stopped speaking against the Holy Spirit and the law, for we heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs that Moses handed down to us. And all who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at him and saw his face was like the face of an angel. So, the opposition against Stephen said, We can't beat you with logic. We can't beat you with truth. We have no answer to things you're saying, but we don't like any of it, so we're going to lie to get rid of you. We're going to manipulate the system. We're going to use the power we have, and we're going to try to shut you up. And can I just say right now, that is not the way of Jesus. The temptation for us at times, and even when we live in this life, is that we could do the same exact thing if we're not careful. We can set up idols, we can set up systems, we can set up preferences that become gods, that become the way of salvation for us, rather than truth. I have mean, a really simple uh, illustration of this, and maybe you're familiar. I grew up going to Awanas. You think Awanas? No, this is not me bashing on Awanas at all, okay? I'm just using an example. Or Sunday school. Anybody go to go going to Sunday school? Okay, not bashing on that, and just, it's, getting a, it's getting a comeback. Right? We went, to, we went to groups, small groups, in home groups. Okay? Here, here's the thing: those are all systems and practices. But if we're not careful, and honestly, this is a good way for us to evaluate and talk about this. Some people find themselves coming to know and meet God and know Christ. Maybe they came to salvation in Wana. Maybe they come to grow in their faith through Sunday schools. But what is happening is we put our they put their faith along the way into that system, into that thing, into that, into that meeting, rather into the God who used that meeting to save them. And so God has been working in the temple and the synagogue and through the law, but when Stephen came with an argument about who Jesus was and they couldn't refute it, they stood up for the law in the synagogue and they found lies about it. And there's so many times inside of churches we'll, we'll fight over secondary things. We'll get into situations where we have our God set up, our sacred cows, if you will. And we deny the fact that God is a God who is not afraid of truth. That disciples of Jesus aren't afraid of conversations around truth, around change, around the way God leads, by being sensitive to his spirit. And Stephen comes to them and says, there's a new way. You didn't see Jesus in the Old Testament, but he's here. And there's life there. And they didn't want to have it. So they presented false witnesses, and they brought Jesus, Stephen, before the Sanhedrin. And so now we've got, through lies and manipulation, Stephen is brought to the front of the Sanhedrin, who are the powerful in the city, the powerful in Israel. And I'm going to read through uh, Stephen's sermon, starting in 6.15, when he was brought into the Sanhedrin he was presented before them and they asked a simple question. Verse 15 of chapter 6. And all who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at him and saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Stephen, we talked about this last week. There was a presence of his face that was evidence that he had been with Christ. That there was some glory that they saw that literally the Sanhedrin looked at him and they, they don't know why. They couldn't put their finger on it. But they recognized something about Stephen which was glorious. And the first question they asked is this in verse 7 Are these things true? So the accusation has been made, the stage has been set, and Stephen has to respond. And Stephen doesn't respond directly to the accusations. And this is helpful for us as well. Maybe you have been, or maybe you haven't been, in a situation where you've been lied about, it's not pleasant. But if you are, and you're a place where lies have been spread about you, it's helpful to recognize that at times in conversations about the gospel and about grace and Jesus and about who he is, that people will get sidetracked into unimportant issues or about deceptions or about things that are not really the main thing. And Stephen doesn't get sidetracked. Stephen goes into what is called his sermon directly telling them what they need to know about God and the way he works. There's three things I want to draw out, I want to point to as we walk through this. And we want to keep our eye on. Because there's three themes, as he's given this story, that he is stressing throughout. What he's trying to get across. And the first one is this. That God's work is not limited to a place or a building or a nation for that matter. The second thing is that God uses... Unexpected circumstances for his miraculous purposes. And the third theme is that people have a history of rejecting God's messengers. So let's look at those themes in in his sermon. He starts in verse 2. He says this, Brothers and fathers, he replied, Listen, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia. Before he settled in Haran and said to them, Leave your country and relatives and come to the land that I will show you. So, right out of the gate, Stephen says, The God of glory didn't need a temple or a place. He shows up to Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he settled in Haran. So he's working and he's not limited to where he works. Verse 4 Then he left the land of the Chaldeans and he settled in Haran. And from there, after his father died, God had him move to this land in which you are now living. He didn't give him an inheritance in it, not even a foot of ground, but he promised to give it to him as a possession and to his descendants after him, even though he was childless. Again, Stephen is stressing that he's coming to this land, but even at the moment that Abraham gets to this land from Haran, he doesn't have an inheritance yet. God is not limited as he works with Abraham by land or by possession of land. Or the building. Verse 6 God spoke in this way His descendants would be strangers in a foreign country, and they would enslave and oppress them for 400 years. I will judge the nation that they will serve as slaves, God said, and after this, they will come out and worship me in this place. So if you read this portion, you see that as God spoke to Abraham, Stephen points out that he tells him his descendants are going to be strangers in a foreign country. And that they're going to be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. Now that doesn't seem like an ideal situation for followers of God. It wouldn't be a promise that I'd like to latch on to. I had a conversation with someone not too long ago who's an unbeliever and he was asking me about if I could pitch him heaven. He said, could you give me a pitch for heaven, why I want to go there? And 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 then when I gave him a uh, some of my answer he said he said come on i like you'd come with a little more promise maybe something like the you know the, the islam's got the what the virgins and i'm just trying to figure out what you know all that they, they've got something they're working for i said listen <laughs> i was like that's not the way god works and so in this particular case if god comes up to you and he says here's a deal you're going to be my people and part of the deal is you're going to be a slave for 400 years okay that's not the pitch that my friend would take as a real good sales point for buying into God and to Jesus. In this particular case, Stephen's point of the fact that A, God's people are going to be descendant, his descendants are going to be strangers in a foreign land, foreign country. They're going to be slaves, which is not ideal. But God's going to work through that, verse 7, and I will judge the nations that they will serve as slaves. And after this, they will come out and worship me in this place. Again, God is not limited to space and place. And God is not uh, is using strange, and even undesirable circumstances for his glory. Verse 8. And so he gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision. After this, he fathered Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob became the father of the twelve patriarchs. And now in this particular portion, this is uh, the sign of circumcision was something that was given to Abraham as a sign of promise. Uh, what was called the covenant. And so God is promising to Abraham that he will do these things... And that his people and descendants will be blessed. And as a sign, he says, here is a sign of the covenant between the two of us that I will keep my promises. And this is something helpful for all of us to remember and I've I've tried throughout uh, the time of my kids being in our home to repeat over and over again. That if we remember nothing else about God, God always keeps his promises. God always keeps his promises. And so he promises this, And has a sign of the covenant with Abraham and with his descendants. And then starting in verse 9, Stephen goes on to talk about the patriarchs. Became jealous of Joseph and sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all his troubles. Now it's not wrong. Uh, I want to take a moment to say this. It's not actually a, a wrong evaluation for the freedmen in the synagogue to think there's something special in connection to the land. God draws attention to that on a regular basis. And actually, when we look at Joseph, <clears throat> even though it seems like Joseph's living the high life when he is, he's sold into slavery, but then he becomes second in command over all of Egypt. The way that it's presented in Scripture is he's still not in God's land with God's people, so he's not in the best place. And so when we look at this story, we see that despite the fact that the patriarchs became jealous of Joseph, and they decided to... Sell their brother into slavery god's still working again doesn 't seem like much of a circumstance that we would desire for our life. when I get up or go to bed in the at night and I get up in the morning, my first prayer isn't that Lord, I prayed you'd work through this, and if I have to be sold into slavery, so be it it's never in the back of our mind, but even in that very undesirable circumstance god's At work. And more than that, he's at work outside of Israel in Egypt. He's at work with Joseph. And so, what happens when he's in Egypt? He gave him favor and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who appointed him ruler over Egypt and over his whole household. Now, a famine and great suffering came over all of Egypt and Canaan, and our ancestors could find no food. Again, a famine. To be used by God for his purpose. And outside of Canaan, and outside of where God's people were promised land, he's working in Egypt because his people can't find food, but he's prepared Joseph ahead of time so that his people would have supply. Verse 12, when Jacob heard there was grain in Egypt, he sent our ancestors there the first time. The second time, Joseph revealed himself to his brothers. And Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. So Joseph invited his father, Jacob, and all his relatives, 75 people in all. And Jacob went down to Egypt. He and our ancestors died there, were carried back to Shechem, and were placed in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor and Shechem. So really this portion is continuing to reiterate for the Sanhedrin. God has worked all over the place, and he has been faithful to his people. And when Jacob heard about that there was grain in Egypt, he didn't know that Joseph had been preparing for them, that God had used Joseph's enslavement to provide for his people. And in 15, Jacob went down to Egypt, the place that's not where the temple is, a place where, where God's is, land is not located. It's a different nation, yet God is still protecting and providing for his people. And now Moses comes, verse 17. Remember, Moses is one of the things that the freedman synagogue says that that, uh, Stephen is rejecting. Verse 17, as the time was approaching to fulfill the promise that God had made to Abraham, the people flourished and multiplied in Egypt until a different king who did not know Joseph ruled over Egypt. And then what happens? 19, he dealt deceitfully with our race and oppressed our ancestors by making them abandon their infants Outside, so they wouldn't survive. So many ways in this devastating world that we see pain and suffering. How dark a world would it be if we were forced by our nation to set our babies outside or expose them or throw them in the Nile, as often as recorded as well. Throw them into where the alligators, the crocodiles, the Nile crocodiles were located. And in this particular case, God's people is, are living and flourishing In Egypt, where God is working, but he allows the nation to oppress his people. And he's going to use it for his purpose. That means all the evil that's done to us in this world, brothers and sisters, even when others choose wrong and sin against us and violence against us, we serve a God who is far and above them. That the darkness of this world cannot distinguish the light of God's grace. That in his kindness, even though Pharaoh, in this case, is cruel to God's people, God is going to redeem them in the end. That he's going to make all things right. Verse 20. At this time, Moses was born and he was beautiful in God's sight. That doesn't necessarily mean he is of some fair complexion but in fact that God looked on him with grace, that he was, he was good in God's sight, that he saw him and what he was going to be and do and how he was going to use him was good. He was cared for in his father's home for three months. And when he was put outside, Pharaoh's daughter adopted and raised him as her own son. So Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in his speech and actions. This is an interesting portion of the story. Uh, all evidences from these quotations, just if you want to know a little background, Stephen is actually quoting from what's called the Septuagint. It's a Greek translation which was well-known and well-used at that time because there was a lot of Greek-speaking Jewish people. And so the quotes he's taking are, are evidence that when translators look at this, they can tell he's quoting from the Septuagint. It'd be like if I get up here and I'm using the CSB or I'm using the ESV or I'm using the NIV and I'm, or I'm quoting from, better yet, you know, the message. You could tell. Right, In this case, we can tell he's quoting from uh, the Septuagint. And what they understand and what they speak to is that Moses was educated in all wisdom of Egypt. And the benefit of that was he was powerful in speech and action. That's weird because Moses, when he went before and saw God at the burning bush, said, I'm, I'm not good with speech. But what Stephen was pointing out was that despite the fact that Moses had no self-confidence in his own abilities... That God had worked in circumstances to prepare him for the task ahead. That, That even though he didn't feel confident after being cast out and running away from Egypt and being out in the wilderness for an additional 40 years, that God had prepared in him the capabilities and the abilities to do what he needed him to do. And how did he do it? Well, the very Pharaoh who was persecuting God's people his daughter adopts and brings their redeemer into into the royal family. How crazy is that? That, what, What a great story. A great story that God uses the people who are trying to destroy his people to actually prepare the redeemer for his people. And so when Pharaoh his daughter adopted and raised him. Moses got the benefit of being educated in what was one of the most educated and well-prepared nations in the world at the time. Highly advanced. He got, he got the ability and the benefit of being among royalty and learning the ways and conversations and, and, and the power that comes in confidence with that kind of environment. And so God prepared him. And then he went into... Um, His 40s. Great things happen when you turn 40, just by the way. When he was 40 years old, he decided to visit his own people, the Israelites. He knows that he's from Israel. He knows that these are his people. In verse 24, when he saw one of them being mistreated, remember they're slaves, he came to his rescue. He avenged the oppressed man by striking down the Egyptians. So he kills a man, we read in the story. There's no evidence that God tells him to do it. He knows these are his people for one reason or another. And it says here, as, as Stephen tells the story, that he assumed his people would understand that God would give them deliverance through him. So in some way, Moses thought, I'm going to try to redeem my people. And the way he tries to do it is by killing one of the Egyptians. And this is not what God has told him to do. He hasn't told him to do this, He's going to go his own way, and he's going to use force, and he's going to use violence. And so he strikes down and fights and kills an Egyptian. And in, in verse 25, he thought that they would understand that God would give them deliverance through him, but they did not understand. So it didn't work out. Imagine that. We, we decided to do things our own way, and things don't come together the way we always hope. When we turn to our own wisdom, when we turn to our own methodologies, Moses decides to kill somebody to try to redeem his people, and it doesn't work out. Verse 26, the next day he showed up while they were fighting, and he tried to reconcile them peacefully, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why are you mistreating each other? But the one who was mistreating his neighbor pushed Moses aside, saying, Who appointed you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me the same way you killed the Egyptian yesterday? So they saw his deed, they saw what he did, and they completely rejected him as a redeemer or as someone who would deliver them. He said, who are you, a ruler and a judge over us? So God uses that circumstance, and Moses fled from Egypt because he heard this from them, verse 29, Moses fled and he became an exile in the land of Midian, now running from his choices, his deeds in Egypt, where he became the father of two sons. And remember, he's in the land of Midian, Verse 30, after 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in the flame of a burning bush. God meets him in Midian. Not in Jerusalem, not in a temple, but in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. As he was approaching to look at it, the voice of the Lord came. I am the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. Moses began to tremble and did not dare to look. The Lord said to him, take off the sandals from your feet, because the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their groaning and have come down to set them free. And now, come, I will send you to Egypt. God meets Moses in Midian in the wilderness. He says he's heard, he's seen the oppression, and he's heard their groaning, and he's going to free his people But in that space where God meets him, he says this, the place you're standing is holy ground. Take off your shoes. Where God is at work is always holy ground. It doesn't have to be in the places that we preconceive to be where God works. It doesn't have to be in this church setting. It doesn't have to be in a temple, a building. In fact, what we see is that as God works today, he says his spirit is in his people. And so that as God resides and dwells in us, we live and breathe and walk on holy ground. That everywhere we go, God is continuing to work and to do the work that he has set out to in redeeming his people. Verse 35, this Moses whom they rejected when they said, Who appointed you a ruler and a judge? This one God sent as a ruler and a deliverer through the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out and performed wonders and signs in the land of Egypt, at the Red Sea, and in the wilderness for 40 years. So he's pointing out the fact that this man, Moses, who you now are venerating and telling me how I'm trying to destroy and tear down Moses, that Moses was rejected by his people. That Moses, they said, who do you think you are? Some ruler and judge over us. And then in verse 37, it says that this Moses, who also said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. So he told them, there's going to be one like me later. That same man, he's the one who was in the assembly in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our ancestors. He received living oracles to give to us. This Moses did all these things. Yet, how did Israel respond? Our ancestors were unwilling to obey him. Instead, they pushed him aside and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. They had the oracles with them. They had Moses present with them. They walked with Moses and saw God work. He split the Red Sea. Yet, they pushed him aside. They rejected what God was doing in Moses and their hearts turned back to Egypt. Their hearts desired what they had before. Their hearts didn't desire God, but desired what they thought was better than what God had to offer. It's interesting, and I wanted to point out to you in these comments that, that, that uh, Stephen makes, and you can read these and study these a little bit. But Stephen makes a comment multiple times to both God at work and to the angel. In this particular passage, he says that God sent as a ruler and deliverer through the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He made that reference earlier about the angel. He led them through, um, performed wonders and signs in the land of Egypt. Elsewhere, he also talks about uh, the angel in verse 38, who the angel spoke to him on Mount Sinai. And those are both instances in which we know that God spoke with Moses. And the reason I'm pointing that out is because that the Israelites were very comfortable going back and forth between the angel of the Lord and God himself. That they did not have something that, that pushed back against the idea that God would come and what angel means, messenger, in the form of a messenger. In this particular case, what we understand as we read these things, and we often refer to them as Christophanies, or images, or pictures of Christ. where in the Old Testament that Christ came to God's people and spoke to them. Even when Joshua, before he goes in on a campaign into the Promised Land, it says that the angel of the Lord's army spoke with him. And we see that in other places like when Joseph is being blessed by his father Jacob in Genesis 48. He makes a very smooth transition in the same commentary between God and the angel. He says this, the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked the God who has been my shepherd all my life uh, to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all harm, he says, the God, the God, the angel, and then with a singular he, he says, may he bless these boys. So in the same way, Stephen is pointing to the fact that God has a way of coming as a messenger to his people and that over and over again, his people reject the messenger. In verse 40, We see how they rejected Moses. They told Aaron, Make us gods who will go before us and for Moses, who brought us out of the land of Egypt. We don't know what's happened to him. They even made a calf in those days, offered sacrifice to the idol, and were celebrating what their hands had made. 42, God turned away and gave them up to worship the stars of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. House of Israel, did you bring me offerings and sacrifices for 40 years in the wilderness? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your god, Riphen. The images that you made to worship. So I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. This is God's judgment over his people. He says, you have rejected me by worshiping other gods. And they rejected Moses in the wilderness. They rejected God when instead of waiting on him, they set up uh, a calf, an idol to worship for themselves verse 44 our, our ancestors had the tabernacle the testimony in the wilderness just as he who spoke to Moses commanded him to make it according to the pattern he had seen Our ancestors in turn received it and with Joshua brought it in when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before them Until the days of David he found favor in God's sight and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob It was Solomon rather who built him a house so what it, Stephen's reminding them is the tabernacle was given to Israel in the, in the wilderness. They brought it with them into the promised land that as they had it set up unto the point of David, David wanted to build a dwelling place, a permanent synagogue, a pe- permanent temple for God. And yet it was Solomon, rather, who built him a house. But in all those places, in all those spaces, God is not contained by the tabernacle. And he says it in 48 But the Most High does not dwell in sanctuaries made with hands. As the prophet says, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What sort of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what will be my resting place? Did not my hand make all these things? God is not contained by our buildings, God is not contained by our structures and our, and our attempts like Moses to do our own way and our own thing. God is not restricted by those things. He's not restricted by the tabernacle. Instead, Stephen says God is beyond that and he doesn't need to be, he can't be contained. Does he choose to dwell with his people in the tabernacle? Yes, but he's not constrained by the tabernacle. And now Stephen lands the final commentary based on everything he said to this point. He tells the Sanhedrin where they stand. You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears. I talked about this last week where I feel like this is much more of an earnest appeal. Not, he's not just throwing insults. He says, you stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears. You're always resisting the Holy Spirit. Why? As your ancestors did, you do also. Which of the prophets did your ancestors not persecute? They even killed those who foretold of the coming of the righteous ones. The one who said Jesus was coming, they killed them. And whose portrayers and murderers you have now become. You received the law under the direction of angels, and yet you have not kept it. You haven't obeyed. You've done exactly the same thing. And how do they respond? How do we know that these people are more concerned about their power, their position, their strength, their politics, because they are the powerhouse in in Israel at this time. In verse 54, when they heard these things, they were enraged and gnashed their teeth at him. And Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven. He saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. He said, look, I see the heavens open up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. This is the first Christian martyr we we have a story about. We see where Stephen is now the... The target of anger for the Sanhedrin because they have heard what is true and yet they resist and fight back against it. They put Jesus to death because he challenged their authority and their power. He called into question the things that they taught to be true. And now Stephen's setting them up as the bad guy in the story. And so when they heard these things, they had no... They they had no rationality about it, but they had anger. God's people are rational people. We are loving people. We don't react in anger and violence. Yet here in this space, the Sanhedrin saw and heard what they didn't like, and they fought back, and they attacked Stephen. And Stephen responded by saying something interesting. He said, look, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Jesus recalls some time ago when he was in front of the Sanhedrin, there's a parallel between what we see here and we see of, of Jesus' story. Jesus was lied about and brought before the council. Stephen was lied about and brought before the council. When they came, they didn't have anything they could accuse him of, For they brought false witnesses. They brought false witnesses against Stephen. Jesus is accused of saying he was able to destroy the temple of God. Stephen is accused of saying that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this temple and this tabernacle. The high priest came before him and asked him, are these things true? What do you have to say for yourself of Jesus? With Stephen, he came before Stephen and said, how are these things? Are they so? Jesus says to them, and this is the statement he gives, this quote, "Thou hast said, nevertheless, I say unto you, hereafter, Shall ye see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven? He refers to himself as the Son of Man. He refers to himself in what they understood to know was a God statement that I am like the Son of Man and I will be sitting on the right hand of power. Here's the contrast. Stephen says he looks up and he sees the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. You guys ever been to a really exciting basketball or football game or something? You ever see something really going, you're pumped about your team? How many people in here have a hard time sitting down? You yeah, see, so we got one hand. I see that hand. Jesus sees his disciple, his, his follower, Stephen, proclaiming his glory in boldness and fearlessness before the Sanhedrin. And when Stephen looked up, Jesus wasn't just sitting beside the Father, he was on his feet, he was cheering for us, for Stephen. Scripture says he intercedes for us. He prays for us. Jesus is for you, for me. And when we stand boldly before opposition like this, we can trust that even at our darkest moment that Jesus is standing and he is interceding and he is for you and for us and for me. And then the end of Jesus' story When he is put to death, he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Into thy hands I commit my spirit. At the end of Stephen's story, it says that they stoned Stephen. They dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. The witnesses lay the garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And while they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord, receive my spirit. He knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Do not hold this sin against them. And after saying this, he fell asleep. Over and over and over again, the way of Jesus demonstrates that he shows mercy when people show him anger and rage. That he shows love and forgiveness when people fight back and push back and want to, want to destroy and kill. And in this story of Stephen, we see the same thing in his character, that when they want to stone him, his first thought is forgiveness. It's the same thing that Matthew told the, same, that told the religious leaders that they wrestled with. And he said, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. I don't want you to do better for me. I want you to show mercy. That's what I desire and seek. It's Micah 6, 8. Mankind, he has told each of you what is good and is the Lord require of you to act justly, to love faithfulness, to walk humbly with your God. Because in the end, the way of God is God's way leads to life. Look at verses 1 through 3 of chapter 8. After Stephen's put to death, Saul agreed with putting him to death. And on that day, a severe persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout the land of Judea and Samaria. Devout men buried Stephen and mourned deeply over him. Saul, however, was ravaging the church. He would enter house after house Drag off men and women and put them in prison. Now here's, I want to close with this. Even though it seems counterintuitive to the world we live in, to have, to win through power, through force, through, through occupation, through all these ways the Sanhedrin are bringing violence against Stephen. The way of Jesus, humility, kindness, grace, truth, love, all of those things are actually what leads to life. Now, that might seem strange because Stephen is actually put to death. Counterintuitive. But what you have to see in this particular story is a couple things. First, that all except the apostles were scattered throughout the land of Judea and Samaria. Next week, we're going to talk about Philip, and we're going to see that the message of Jesus goes out from Jerusalem because of this sacrifice, and the people of God were emboldened because of it. Secondly, we also see where God... Where, where the world thinks they're winning, and Saul is standing there in persecution of God's people, God actually takes Saul later in Acts and makes him one of the greatest apostles for his word in the Gentile world. So where the world thinks that there's success, God is using those, those devastating circumstances, the, like the death of Stephen, to actually bring about his good purpose where the Saul was ravaging the church, really the gospel was going forth. And that's the same story that goes over and over again throughout the stories of martyrs in the early church, where Nero was persecuting his church, where Nero was persecuting the church in Rome, but yet even at the advance of his persecution, that it says that Christianity was not diminished, the spirit rather increased. That people who were killed, like Germanicus, a young man but a true Christian, being delivered to the wild beasts, he behaved with such astonishing courage that several pagans became converts to a faith which inspired in fortitude. That everywhere along the way as God's people are faithful and they are confident in his grace that God continues to advance his church through the blood of the martyrs. And then when we look at places and we see like in Rome where the catacombs underneath of Rome are lined with martyrs of the Christian faith. You can can see in those catacombs the inscriptions on their graves, and they read like this. Here lies Marcia, put to rest in a dream of peace. Lawrence, to his sweetest son, born away of angels, victorious in peace and in Christ. Being called away, he went in peace. These believers followed God's way, the way of Jesus, the way of life, and they found life even in death. Because God advances his kingdom through truth, Proclaiming in love over the lies, the manipulation, the power of worldly opposition, none of that can stop his advance. Let's pray. Father, I'm thankful for your word this morning and thankful for your kindness. I ask God that you give us grace as we continue in worship today, that we would see your face more clearly and we would know Jesus more fully. And we ask all this in his name.